Hello, everyone. Um, good afternoon. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Rich. I'm going to be kind of leading us through this next part of our meeting together. Uh, and what that's going to look like is that we're going to pick up a series that we've been in um, over kind of the summer months, um, exploring the life of Daniel. And we've been seeing within this story that Daniel is a guy who is placed for purpose. That's what we kind of called the series as we've explored it together, that we found that Daniel is someone who's been put in a unique position, that he lived at a point of history uh, where the Israelite people had been taken into captivity in a foreign culture, foreign land, uh, captivity in Babylon. But even in that place, God had good things for him, that God had put him in that place in order that he might influence and bless the world around him. But however many of us are here in this room today, maybe 30 or so, the same is true of us as well, that each of us has a unique place, and that in that place, we are placed for purpose, that God has good for us in that place, and that good is primarily to know him, to enjoy him, and to reveal him to those around us. Whether our circumstances at the moment are tough, whether we've got things that we're finding difficult in our lives, or whether it all seems to be going really smoothly, in that place, God as good for us. We are placed for purpose. And today we're going to be looking at that theme through the lens of a particular story in the life of Daniel. And it's a story that's kind of quite well known. It's the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, and I think one of the reasons why this story is so well known is because it contains within it so many of the different elements of Daniel's life that we have been looking at over the last few weeks and that we're going to look at over the coming weeks as well. And so we see in this story something of how Daniel lives in a different culture, how he adapts to doing that, how he integrates at different points and how he takes a stand at other points, how he lives when he has moments of influence and great power come his way, and how he lives when he has moments of suffering and trials. We see how Daniel lives and how he conducts himself in his work life, his public life, and in his private life and the way that he prays, and the way that he follows God. And we see as well, if all of that wasn't enough, we see in this story a picture of the big story, God's great plan for the redemption and restoration of all things through his son, Jesus. And so all of that is kind of going on in the midst of this story. And normally what we'd do at this point is we'd kind of read through the whole passage together and then kind of unpack it verse by verse. If you've heard me speak before, uh, you'll know that I kind of like quite a good structure uh, in my talks. I kind of try and get three points if I can. And if I can get some alliteration in there, that's even better. Kind of makes it exciting for me, even if it doesn't make it exciting for you. Um, but today we're going to do things slightly different. What we're going to do is we're going to immerse ourselves in the story instead. We're going to try and see it from a whole load of different angles and perspectives. And then look together at the end at a few different points of application, uh, things I think we can learn from this story. And so if you do have a Bible with you, you might want to open it up to Daniel chapter 6, uh, kind of just to, to check that I'm not making any of it up uh, as I go along or to kind of follow along as we talk through the story. And so what we find at the start of Daniel chapter 6 is that it's a big time of transition, not just for Daniel, but in fact for the whole kingdom. And so in the last couple of verses of chapter 5, we found that the old king, a guy called Belshazzar, has been killed. 
He's been murdered in the night and his kingdom has been taken over by someone different. A new emperor has risen to power, a guy called Darius. And Darius is not a Babylonian. He's a Mede. And so what we've seen at this point is that something quite dramatic has happened in the life of the kingdom. The Babylonian empire that Daniel has been living in has been taken over by another empire. It's a new kingdom. Now it's now the Medo-Persian empire. It's the greatest kingdom, the biggest empire the world at that point had ever seen. It stretches all the way from kind of Israel, Palestine in the west to modern day Pakistan in the east, in the south kind of Egypt and in the north to what is now Russia. So it's a big, big expanse of space. And so it's an uncertain time. We've got this massive new kingdom, new rulers, a new dynasty. They've brought with them a new culture, new laws. And what all this is going to mean for Daniel and for the Israelites is at the moment a little bit unknown. It's all a little bit uncertain. And so what we find as we start Daniel chapter 6 is that Darius, the new king, decides that he wants to stamp his authority on this new kingdom. And so he's like a new CEO. He's just taken over, and he wants to put all of his people in charge. And so what he does, we read, is that he has reorganized the kingdom. He's put 120 governors or satraps over different areas of it in order that they might govern things for him so that this whole new empire, this whole new kingdom, holds together as one, and also all of the power and prestige and money keeps flowing inwards, keeps flowing to the center, keeps flowing towards him. And so he puts these 120 people in charge, and over them he puts three other individuals as well. And one of those is Daniel. And so this is where we find Daniel. We find him at this point, having lived in Babylon for 60 or 70 years. We've kind of skipped forward in the story a little bit. He's been there a long time. And what he's been doing He's been living out a call that the prophet Jeremiah had made to the people in exile, a call to bless the city that they're living in, a call to seek its good in order that as it prospers, they too would prosper. Daniel's been living that out now for a long time. In all that he's been doing, he has been loyal to Babylon. He's been giving them his best. But at the same time, he's been fully faithful to God, always reliant on God, always fully dependent on God. So he's been living that out in a kingdom of hostility, a kingdom of barbarity, as we're going to see, a kingdom, a place that is tough and hard and brutal at points. And yet he's been living out a life, as Mike looked at the last time we gathered together, a life of kingdom influence, of integrity, of winsomeness, of courage, community, of humility, and above all, of dependence upon God. And so Daniel finds himself in this amazing, unexpected position of influence, one of these three people set above everyone else. And in fact, the king, Darius, wants to set him even higher up. Nebuchadnezzar, the first king, and Belshazzar, the second king, and and Darius, the third king, all of them had recognized something about Daniel. They'd all seen that this guy is a guy they want around. He's someone that they want to get involved 
in the running of their kingdom. And so Darius plans to set him above everything, to set him above everyone. And yet, what we've found in the story is that Daniel has never sought that kind of power just for the sake of power. He's only ever sought influence in order to bless the city around him. He's only ever sought the good of others in all that he's doing and all that he's given himself to in this strange new culture in which he's found himself. And yet, he finds himself in this story in the midst of a conspiracy from those who do seek power for the sake of power, from those who are seeking their own good, not the good of the city. And we read uh, in verse 4 that that's not Daniel's fault at all. It says that his opponents come to him uh, and they try and find anything they can get to stick on him, something uh, that they can use to bring him down, some kind of scandal that they can use. But it says they can't find anything. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. He was excellent at what he did. He was dependable in what he was doing. And so we see that the conspirators, the only reason that they could find against him was his faith. That was the only option left. They couldn't find anything in his public life or in his private life against him that they thought they could use to unseat him, to take his position and his power for their own, unless it had something to do with his faith, unless it had something to do with his dependence on God, unless it had something to do with his devotion to justice and righteousness, unless it had something to do with his commitment to prayer. That was the only way they were going to get him. And so what we find is that they can't find any laws he's broken, and so they're left with only the option to create a new one that might trap him. And so we find this conspiracy. And so Daniel's opponents come to the king, this new king, remember, a guy who, even though at this point he's kind of 60 years old when he's taken over, he's taken over a brand new kingdom. It's a new position for him. And they come to him and they say, oh, Darius, great king, mighty king, may you live forever. You are the greatest. You are the most wonderful ruler why don't you make a new law? Why don't you say that for the next 30 days, everyone in the whole kingdom can only pray to you? Wouldn't that be kind of a fitting tribute to your majesty and to your might, to your splendor and to your glory? And if anyone does anything other than that, they pray to any God or man other than you, they should be thrown into the lion's And Darius, caught up in his pride and his new position and all the prestige and the power that he's got, agrees. He signs the law. He writes it as if it's written in stone in order that it cannot be changed. It cannot be revoked later on. And Daniel hears about this. He hears about it. And the first thing he does is defy it. And so... If we look down at verse 10, what it, said, what it says is this. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published. So in other words, 
it's saying is that Daniel has no excuse for what's coming next. He knows exactly what is going to happen. He can't plead that he was ignorant of this new law. He knows what it is. He can't claim that he was kind of confused or mistaken about what it was or what it said. No. Daniel's perfectly clear. And now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Daniel wants us to know that what comes next is not an accident. He knows that if he goes and does this, he will be thrown into the lion's den. And yet for him, this is something that's worth dying for. This is the value that Daniel places on prayer. That in his life in Babylon, Daniel has given up so much already. He's given up his home in Jerusalem. He's given up his culture. He's given up his language. He's even given up his name. In chapter one, we're told he's given a new name during his time in Babylon. He's given up all those things. And yet, this is one thing he is not willing to give up. This is something that for Daniel is worth dying But the thing is, if you read your way through the Old Testament up to this point, if you look at and study in detail all of the laws of the Israelites, all of the commands that God gives to his people, nowhere in there will you find a command that you have to pray three times a day. Nowhere in there will you find a command that you have to go back to your house when you pray, where your enemies might be waiting for you. Nowhere do we find a, a decree or a law anywhere that says that when you pray, you have to pray on the upper floor of a house next to an open window in order that anyone who is walking past might see. We can't find that anywhere in the Old Testament. And so we're left with the conclusion that this is Daniel's choice, that he knows what's coming next, and yet so important to him is prayer. This is he has decided to do to make a statement that God is greater in his life, that he will not bow and bend the knee to any man or any king. We're to know at this point that all that's coming could be avoided. Daniel could uh, go to the woods to pray. He could pray in his closet. He could pray uh, early in the morning before anyone else has gotten up. He could pray late at night after everyone else has gone to bed. But he doesn't. He values prayer more than life. He has the same perspective that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have back in chapter 3. When they're threatened with being thrown into the fiery furnace, they don't bow down before a golden statue. And their response to that is that they believed that God could save them, but that even if he did not, they would not bend the knee. They would not bow to the idol. And I think Daniel is the same. I think he believes that God could save him from the lion's den. But I don't think he's counting on it. I think his perspective, as we see from his determination and his dedication in prayer, is that he will do this whatever happens, whatever comes next. And so the inevitable happens. 
Daniel goes, he prays three times a day by an open window, and he's caught. The conspirators go to the king, they remind him what he's written, they remind him of the law that's been written in stone so it can't be changed. And Darius is distraught. The king at this point realizes that he's been caught up in his pride. He's been caught up and he's forgotten his people. He's curved in on himself. He's been played by these conspirators. He's been had. He makes every effort, we're told, to save Daniel. He works till sundown to try and find Daniel a way out of it. We can imagine him kind of hiring the best lawyers of Babylon to try and find some kind of technical loophole to get Daniel out of this. And yet, so clear is the law and so clear is Daniel's defiance of it that nothing can save him. And so, it says in verse 16, the king is left with no choice. The king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Daniel's fate is sealed with a sign of royal authority with a stone rolled across in front. The king goes back to the palace. He sits alone, no food, no drink, no entertainment is brought to him. He endures a sleepless night, wondering what will happen. And Daniel sits alone, surrounded by lions. Lions, these kind of kingly animals. Is there anything that kind of represents the power of a monarch more than a lion? We see it all the way through kind of the ancient Near East that kings would use lions to show their might and majesty and splendor. They would say, look at this beast. Isn't he the greatest of all of the kingdoms of the world? Isn't he the greatest of the animal kingdom? And yet I am above him. I control the lions. I use the lions as my instrument of justice. I show my dominance by bringing even these great beasts and bending them into my will. That is my authority. That's the place that Daniel sits, surrounded by these symbols of the power and authority of earthly rulers. And yet what happens, what we find if we know the story, that the king arrives back at first light, he's desperate to see what's happened, and he finds something quite unexpected. He finds that God is in charge, that God controls even the lions that these animals, which he had intended to show his justice, God has used to show his justice in sparing the innocent rather than in condemning them. That these animals, which speak of royal authority, God's authority is higher than that, that by the word of his messenger, an angel, he can shut the lion's mouth. That's the authority he has these animals who were to be used as an instrument of death and violence and war, God has brought about peace and wholeness 
to a man unjustly condemned. We're told later on uh, in the prophet Isaiah that one day a day will come when God's presence so fills the earth, when he so has everything set to right again, that the lion will lie down with the lamb. He will eat straw like the other animals. So complete will peace on the earth be. That's the authority that God has. And the king, rather than taking that as some kind of slight against him, is overjoyed. He's overjoyed, but in a reminder that this is still a hostile, barbaric culture, he rounds up the conspirators and their families and he has them thrown into the lion's den instead. It's a reminder that even though, um, even though Darius has seen something of the power and majesty of God, he's not at this point seen something of the grace of God and the mercy of God that was evidenced through his saving of Daniel. But to his credit, Darius, having seen all of these things, issues a new proclamation, a new decree. He writes, it says, to all nations and peoples of every language in all the earth. He says, I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed and his dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He's rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Daniel is restored to his position. He's raised up again in the kingdom, and he prospers from this point on. That is the story. It's a well-known story, isn't it? It's a great story, but it's one that's great to get stuck into in order that we can see that there are so many things in this story which speak about our experiences um, in our culture today at the moment, that speak about the goodness of God in every situation and every circumstance. And so I think there are a few particular points of application that I'd like to look at. And the first of those is that we are to enjoy the big story. We're to keep enjoying big story, the story that is Jesus's story. Because Jesus's story is the story that we see in the life of Daniel. We see someone who comes and lives a perfect life, who does good to those around him, who always seeks the best of others, a righteous man in every sense, who is unjustly condemned by conspirators, who is sealed in what is thought to be his tomb, with a stone rolled across in front, a mark of royal authority put upon him. A situation which seems hopeless, and yet God turns it for good. That's the story of Jesus. But where the story is different is that Jesus dies. Daniel lives, and Jesus dies. The question we're left with is, is why does Jesus die? If God spares the innocent, why does Jesus, the only man to live a perfect, holy, sinless life, why does he take a death? Why does he 
bear a punishment and a penalty which is not his to bear. What we see is he takes the death that the conspirators in Daniel's day received. He takes the punishment and the penalty for every act of conspiracy, not just against the king, but against God. For every act that we make that is a conspiracy against God, every moment that I in my life put myself at the center, that I proclaim myself king and Lord and say that I am the one that all praise and attention and goodness need be directed to. Jesus takes that and he bears that in his death on the cross. He takes our man-centered, us-centered, me-centered way of living and he bears it in himself. And then to demonstrate and prove what he has done, he is lifted up from the tomb He's seated in a place of power once again in order that by his life, death, and resurrection, he might proclaim more loudly than Darius the truths that Darius decreed. That Jesus, by his life, death, and resurrection, might proclaim to peoples of every tribe and every nation and every tongue that God is the living God, that he endures forever, that his kingdom will not end, that he rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders. How do we know this? Because he has raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Paul writes in Philippians 2, this about Jesus. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the centerpiece of the big story. And he's the centerpiece of our stories too. That's the invitation today to draw near to Jesus again, to come to this man who is fully man and fully God, who lived, died, and rose again in order that we might be able to come to him and receive forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation, that we might know he has borne our death in order that we might live. That's the first thing. Keep enjoying the big story. The second thing, we're to be those who seek influence, not power. And that, I think, is a really important distinction for us to make. Power uh, is the ability to make someone do something that they don't want to do. Um, Influence is very different. It's where you're able to appeal to someone to change the way that they think about something. Power forces someone to do something. Influence shows them why it's necessary. For example, um, if you are driving along um, in a car, in one of Birmingham's kind of many new 20 mile an hour zones that have kind of sprung up everywhere, um, and you're committing the heinous and wanton criminal act of going at 21 miles an hour uh, in that zone, there are a couple of people who might be able to exercise either power or influence over you in that situation in order to get you to slow down. One of those, for example, might be a policeman who could exercise power over you by pulling you over 
by making you stop, by giving you a ticket and three points on your license and sending you on your way. They have exercised power over you in that situation to cause you to slow down. Someone else, though, perhaps a passenger, maybe a husband or a wife or a friend or some of that, might be able to exercise influence in you uh, over that situation in order to get you to slow down by kind of subtly leaning over, maybe, and, and looking at the speedometer with kind of a raised eyebrow, um, or maybe uh, somehow mentioning that um, you do know this is a, a 20, 20 zone now, don't you? They might be able to exercise influence over you in that situation, in order that you might kind of shrug your shoulders and bring your speed down to a nice, safe, and very, very slow 19 miles an hour. It's the same thing, but it's exercised in very different ways. And Daniel is a man of both power and influence, but his desire is always for influence, not power. He never seeks power for the sake of power. He only ever seeks influence in order to bless those around him, to seek the good of those around him. And what we see in the world today is so many examples of what happens when people seek power for the sake of power. We see it in war and in poverty. We see it in refugee crises, in, in racism. We see it in the sexual abuse scandals that have come to light in recent years. That this is what happens when people seek power for the sake of power, for their own good and not the good of others. We've seen it in the highest levels of kind of government and arts and culture and even in the church. That there have been those who have taken God's name, seeking their own power and their own pleasure and their own privilege. And they've done terrible things, awful things, and they've sought to cover them up using the systems and organizations around them. And it's heartbreaking. We see the brokenness of our world every time we read a newspaper every time we load up the news on our phone. And those things are totally against God's will. They're totally against the way that we see God working through Daniel in this story. In this story, we see how Daniel acts with kingdom influence, not pursuing power for the sake of power, but seeking influence in order to bless and serve those around him. And that's who we're called to be as well. It's what we're called to do, both in our individual actions, in the ways that we treat one another, and also in the systems and structures that we set up that ensure that there is protection for the vulnerable, that there is justice for those who have been oppressed and exploited. That is not something which is separate to the gospel. That is a core gospel issue because it's about the way in which we go about living our life in Christ in the world around us. Those things, the way we respond to those kind of scandals and crises, the way we respond to the problems of the world, that is a gospel issue. That's who we're to be. We're to be those who seek influence, not power. Third thing I think we can learn from this story is that we are to persist in prayer. You know, names have meaning. Everyone uh, here today has a name, and that name has a meaning of some kind. Uh, my name, for instance, Richard, uh, means mighty ruler. Um, 
is a name I'm, I'm not particularly living up to, I'd say, in any kind of meaningful sense yet. Um, maybe, maybe later we'll, we'll see at some point. Um, but Daniel is a guy who has a name with tremendous meaning as well. And Daniel's name, anyone here know what Daniel's name means? Vincent's done. <laughs> okay, I can tell you, your name means God is my judge. God is my judge. In other words, what God thinks and what God does matters more than what anyone else thinks or does. That's what it means. That's what his name means. And that's what we see through Daniel's life is that he grows into the meaning of that name. And we see it in his prayer life. We see it in how he values prayer more than life. And the way that Daniel expresses this is he is disciplined in prayer. He prays every day, three times a day. He prays in a way that I think is very different to the way that many of us pray, the way that prayer is kind of encouraged in the modern world. You know, the church uh, gets so caught up in a fear of legalism that, you know, to to show discipline in our prayer lives and to pray three times a day at these times, to show discipline in the way that we study the Bible um, or the way that we fast or the way that we do any of those things, to show a kind of discipline is bad. That's kind of legalism. We need to stay away from that. That the only true prayer, the only true way to follow Jesus is if we're doing it all spontaneously. As if we're kind of seeking only that amazing experiential encounter. I think we see in the life of Daniel that discipline is not the boring substitute for kind of spontaneity and power. Discipline is the garden where those things grow. You know, I don't think most of Daniel's prayer life, three times a day, every day, were filled with dramatic, amazing, miraculous encounters with God where his whole house was filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit, so much so that those around nearby fell on their knees and gave their lives to God. We don't see that in the story. We see as a guy who's faithful and committed in his prayer life his discipline of prayer maybe is one of those things that leads to moments of radical encounter, of incredible moments meeting with God. You know, Jesus, someone who was fully God, is more disciplined in prayer than almost anyone else. He rises early in the morning, much earlier than I rise to pray. He goes off to lonely places to seek communion with his Father because he loves being in the presence of his father. He loves being devoted and expressing his devotion to God in prayer. That's something we're seeing at the moment more and more in the church in the UK. There's a movement of prayer growing from the ground up. And there are different movements, kind of um, 24-7 prayer movement, the Thy Kingdom Come movement uh, in the Anglican church that's putting prayer back on the agenda. That's something we want to get on board with as a church, we are committed, as Sarah said, early on to believing that God is the one and what he thinks and does matters more than anyone else. And so we will give ourselves to praying to him, to seeking more of him in our lives. We are to persist in prayer. Next thing, I think we are to expect opposition, but we are not to fear it. 
Daniel, we're told in the story, is faultless. He does nothing wrong in his public life, and yet he is still opposed. And therefore, we should expect that as well. We should expect that the more we seek the good of the city, the more others will try and twist that for their own good. We're to expect it, but we're not to fear it, because even in that place, even in the lion's den, God is working out his purposes and turning them for good. Some of the opposition and the suffering and the trials that we'll face is really big, and some of it's really small. You may have noticed if you've been around a few weeks uh, that the plant um, outside our church, we have a number of plants in nice pots outside to kind of make everything slightly greener around here. One of our plants has been stolen outside the church. It's a very harborn crime that somebody walks along and thinks, um, that Grisselinia literalis would look excellent in my garden. I'm having that. That's, uh, that's kind of opposition, but it's quite kind of small-scale opposition. It's very harborn opposition. Some of the opposition that we're facing in our lives, some of the trials, some of the circumstances that we're going through are much bigger than that. They're much harder. We're suffering, some of us, with things in our work lives, in our home lives, in our private lives, in our health. We're suffering with things that we've done and things that other people have done to us. But I think we can learn some key lessons from the life of Daniel about how we are to respond in those times and in those places. But the thing we see in Daniel's life is that when opposition comes against him, they can't find anything negative to say against him. They go through his public life and all of his accounts and everything he's done. They examine his private life and his prayer life, and they can't find anything at all to use against him. You know, I would love that to be said to be true of me, that you could go through my life and everything I've done. In fact, you could go through everything I've ever thought, said, or done in public or private, and you wouldn't find anything that you could use to try and bring me down. You wouldn't find anything you could stick on me that would lower me in your eyes. I'd love it to be true for me, but it's not. I wonder it's probably not true for you either. And this story is unusual in that case. We don't find many stories like this in the Bible. Most of the stories in the Bible are kind of pretty messed up pretty broken people that God still lovingly works through and restores and redeems. That's most of the stories we find. And so when we find a story like this that is quite different, we're to know it's pointing us to something different. It's pointing us to that perfect life that Jesus lives. It's pointing us to the big story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And it's pointing us to the knowledge that in what he does as he dies on the cross, Jesus is drawing us back to himself and he's offering a place where we can know true forgiveness and true healing and true restoration no matter what circumstances we're going through, no matter what trials we're facing, no matter what is being done to us, no matter what consequences we're living with of what we've done to others. Jesus creates a place where we can know there is hope and life, and a future. And that's what we're giving ourselves to as a community. We're giving ourselves to centering on Jesus 
in order that we might build in him a community of transparency and honesty, a community that knows that we can bear our brokenness together, knowing it doesn't disqualify us. We can come to Jesus and know forgiveness and know hope and know restoration. And we can come to one another and find the same. Find people who are out for our best when we come with a heart that is committed to centering again on God, to giving it all to him, to turning our lives and making him the center. We to know that in that place, just like Daniel had a name that he was given and grew into, we are given new names in Christ that we are to grow into. We are called those who are loved, who are accepted, who are chosen and freed and forgiven. We are those who are named children of God, an identity to grow into. And we're to know that Jesus is always with us. Whatever we're facing, whatever circumstances and situations, Jesus is in the lion's den with us, just as he was for Daniel. He has never left us, and he will never leave us or forsake us. Because that is who he is, and that is what he has achieved by his life, death, and resurrection. So that's the next thing. We're to expect opposition, but not to fear it. Final thing, we are to witness boldly. You know, the, uh, the word kind of evangelism has kind of gone out of church kind of usage lately. It feels very kind of 1990s to talk about evangelism again. Um, but the idea that Christians are the only ones who do evangelism um, is kind of nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. Everyone is evangelizing everyone else all the time. Culture is doing it all the time. That every time we turn on our TV, every time we load up Facebook, every time we walk down the street and look at an advert on a bus station, we're being told something about our place in the world. And we're being told something about the big story of the world. And if culture is telling a story, what we get to do at the same time is tell another story, to tell a different story, to tell a better story. And a culture which says that your value is entirely and only wrapped up in what you do or in what you look like or in how much money you have. We're to live lives of kingdom influence that speak a better word than that. We're to live lives of integrity and winsomeness and courage. We're to live them in community and in humility and independence on God. That each of us is uniquely placed to speak into those situations and circumstances and tell people about Jesus. And that's really important that we get hold of. You know, there's a kind of famous misquote from St. Francis of Assisi. You know, he's supposed to have said, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. And it kind of sounds like a nice sentiment, kind of contains an element of truth, which would be those who kind of go about seeking others' good. That's great. Um, but the reality is he never said it. And even if he did, it doesn't really make sense anyway. Um, that word gospel literally means good news. To speak good news without using words doesn't make any sense. It would be like a newsreader on the morning news being told to go and read the day's headlines uh, and if necessary, use words. 
Christianity is not a game of charades. Like, that's not what it's about. Um, it's not a game where we try and act out something that makes other people somehow mysteriously understand what we're talking about and fall on their knees and give their lives to God. It's not a game of articulate either. Um, we don't have to talk around what we're trying to talk about without ever saying what we really mean. We're called to live a life like Daniel where we boldly preach the good news. Because everybody in this culture knew what Daniel believed. Not by magic, not by kind of spiritual osmosis, kind of going out, but because he lived out his life of faith publicly. You know, everyone knew that they could go to a certain place at a certain time and that Daniel there would be praying. He would be giving thanks to God. He'd be giving his devotion, his adoration to his God. Darius knew enough of what Daniel believed to issue a proclamation to the whole world that this is the living God, that he is a God of miracles, he is a God who saves and rescues, that he is a God of a kingdom which will never end. Everybody knew what Daniel believed. And that kind of thing is hard for us to get to grips with in our culture. Um, we live in a world where we're told that we can believe what we want to believe as long as we kind of keep it to ourselves, as long as we stay kind of hidden away. You can believe in God if you want to, that's fine. You can believe in the force if you want to or the, the flying spaghetti monster or anything else as long as you kind of wrap it up and keep it in secret and don't tell anyone else about it. Evangelism done bad, kind of the guy with the megaphone on a street corner shouting only condemnation and hatred. It's turned us off to the idea of telling people about Jesus. But the message of Daniel, what we're to learn to live with, having seen this story and seen what happens in Daniel's life, is that we're not to be those who are always looking for an easy fix or a quick solution which would be those who are in it for the long haul. It's a call to a bold witness, knowing that none of that stands against what we were looking at earlier in terms of the way we conduct ourselves and our character and our integrity and our actions. All of those things are vital because they create the opportunities where we can speak about Jesus, where we can tell a better story than the story the world is telling and we can tell people about their place in that story. That God has chosen them and called them and loved them from before the beginning of the world in order that they would be known by him and drawn to him and healed and forgiven and loved. That each of us from that point is placed with purpose in the big story of God's grand plan for redemption and restoration to call forward that future moment when God will set everything to rights and bring it into the present. That's who we're to be. That's a better story. It's a better word. It's a word our culture needs to hear. It's a word that we need to be telling one another daily. So those are the five things that I think we can learn from this story. And we kind of wrap them up bring them all together in one thing, it would be this, that 
our words have power. Our words have power, and so we are to keep telling this story. We're to keep using our words to influence well, to seek influence, not power for the sake of power, but to bless those around us. We are to persist in prayer, knowing that God's opinion, what God thinks, and what God does is matters more than what anyone else thinks or does. We're to use the power of our words to stand with one another in our trials and our sufferings, to speak comfort and peace and wholeness to one another in our darkest moments, to be with one another in our own lion's dens. And we are to witness boldly. We're to tell people the good news about Jesus because it is news to be shared, to be enjoyed, and to be lived in. Why don't we stand together? I'm going to pray, and then we'll close. Jesus, I thank you that those words that King Darius wrote all those years ago, though he scarcely knew you at all, are such a testimony to your glory and your might and your power. That you are the living God, that you endure forever, that your kingdom will not be destroyed, your dominion will never end, that you rescue and save with signs and wonders. And yet you are also the God demonstrates and gives us grace. The God who is high and mighty above all things and yet draws close to us in order to bring to us peace and comfort and wholeness. And we thank you, Lord, that you have done this in the life, death, and resurrection of your Son in Jesus we can be those who know we are healed and whole once again. We can come to you knowing that as it says in your word, your yoke is easy and your burden is light. You are not a God who is out to get us. You're a God who longs for our best. He loves to speak truth into our lives in order that we might know you and enjoy you and reveal you in each of our unique situations. And so we say, thank you, Lord. Would you do more and more in our lives? Would you do more and more amongst us as we go out from this place to the unique places that we are scattered and sent? Would you enable us and empower us to live lives full of your spirit, lives of kingdom influence, lives of boldness and courage, lives where no matter what it looks like, we know that you are with us, that you have gone before us, that you have good for us.